morning. You can grab a seat. Good morning. This is, uh, we, twice a year we do what we call a family meeting Sunday, the third Sunday in September because Brigade Days was last week, we all know that, and the second Sunday in January, and we take time out of our focus on the lectionary to look specifically at why we do what we do. Could have to do with our mission, with our vision, with our commitments. It could have to do with our values. But we, we believe as a church what we want to see in this community. It's on our little vision statement out there, and it's something that's really important, I, I hope, to all of us, that we want to see lives renewed and a community transformed by the power of the gospel. And, and to see that, we believe that our mission is to help people take one step closer to Jesus. That's how that will happen. And more specifically, we talk about these four commitments that we want people to commit to living in relationship with each other, to finding a mission, that where they're, they're engaged with what God's called them to. We want the, them to commit to learning. And we, today we're going to talk about what it means to commit to worship. Why do we come here on Sunday morning? That is the question that a lot of people outside of here wonder. Why do you do that? Right? Why is it important? What does it mean to, to worship and, and what is actually going on here? So what, what we're going to do today is talk, I feel a little bit like I'm, you know, they say you don't want to see how the sausage is made or whatever. I feel like we're kind of pulling open what we do here on Sunday morning and explaining why we do what we do. And we're going to look at Isaiah 6 as a guideline to help us understand why, what it is we're doing and why it is important. So if you want to if you want to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6, we're going to observe what happens in Isaiah's life in a very spontaneous worship event. It wasn't like he planned this to happen. This just happened. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 to 8. It's a familiar story for many of you. It's Isaiah's vision of God in the temple. Just listen or read along if you want Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died... I saw the Lord seated on a throne high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, and with it he touched my mouth, and he said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said... Here am I, send me. We'll stop there at verse 8. What I want to tease out of this text today is, is really a guideline that gives direction to what we do when we're together. Because I want us to understand that when, when we talk about committing to worship here, what I mean is that worship is surrender to the true story. Worship is surrender to the true story. The word worship in the Bible literally means to bow before a sovereign, a king, to honor one who is greater than you. Now, we've, we've also heard it means worth-ship, giving worth to someone else. Same idea, but you're bowing and humbling yourself before God. 
And we go through practices together. The things we do on a given Sunday morning help us to, to acknowledge the worth of God, but also to bow and surrender ourselves to Him. And we plan our worship services around what we call movements of worship. It may surprise you, but when the worship leaders sit down to plan, they don't just think, okay, we got to get some, we, we want to wake them up right at the beginning, so we need some fast songs, and then we want to settle them down so they, you know, they'll listen to the sermon, and then we want to send them out with something kicking. You know, sometimes we think that's kind of how church is organized. They put a little more thought into it, that. Also, they don't just say, now, what are my favorite songs? I just want to do my favorite songs every week. What, what we do is, is move through a thing called the movements of worship. There's an intention, and there are guidelines, and you'll see them in this passage. You can also see them if you look at the way that the tabernacle in the Old Testament or the temple in the Old Testament was set up. The same types of things are there. These aren't new ideas that we've come up with. This is how the church has worshipped over centuries because they've pulled things out of the Scripture as people approach God and humble themselves before him. And the first thing you see in this text of Isaiah is that God is always present. That's one of the first things we need to realize. Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne. There's some things to notice about it. It's the year that King Uzziah died. Uzziah had been king in Israel for 52 years. He'd been a great king. In fact, he was one of the best since Solomon. At the end of his life, he, he stood up against God and actually had leprosy for the last 11 years of his kingdom and was, was co-regent with his son. But he was, he was a well-loved king, and, and odds are people think that Uzziah and Isaiah were actually friends, that they knew each other. And Isaiah is saying, in the year that King Uzziah died, when the king who we had loved for 52 years was gone... At my point of desolation, I saw the Lord. God was here. And he, he sees these angels. And what are they saying? They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And then they're saying something else. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, I want, to, I want you to notice something there. Does it say the whole earth will be full of his glory? Okay, good. Thank you. Whoever answered that. Good. It, it doesn't say the whole earth will be full of the glory of the Lord. Now, there are passages that say the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord that are talking about the future. But what they're saying in Isaiah right now is that the whole earth at this very moment is full of the glory of God. God is always here, always present. And that's the first thing we want to do when we come to worship is we want to acknowledge that God is with us. That's the true story. But when we realize that, when we realize God is holy and he's glorious and he's here, another thing happens because seeing God exposes us. The minute Isaiah sees all this, he sees the Lord, he realizes that the earth is full of glory and he says, woe is me. The minute you see God for who he is, it exposes who you are. That, that woe is me is a term of grief. Actually, in Hebrew, you, you've heard this word. It's oi. You know, you ever hear Jewish people? Oi. That's the Jewish term. And it's woe. But, it, but in this context, it was a funeral term. It was this woe is me. I'm ruined. Ruined actually means I am stopped. I am undone. I am destroyed. It's related to a Hebrew word that, that says we're created in God's image and likeness. And what he's saying is, I have seen God and I am not like him. I'm undone. 
when he sees God and he realizes the truth of God's glory, he also realizes his own sin and he confesses, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. Why is it so overwhelming to him? Because he says, my eyes have seen the, the King, the Lord Almighty. See, the true story that worship involves says that the world is God's and it's full of his glory. And we, when we see that, are convicted by our own brokenness and our own sin. He's holy and we aren't. We need help. The good news comes in verse 6 and 7. And that is that God's heart is to restore. The minute he says that, look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand. I always, I've never until this week read, I know he takes it with a tong off the altar, but then the seraph puts it, a live coal in his hand. That's a pretty impressive image. And with it, he touched my mouth. And he said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. There's this idea of sacrifice taken from the altar, this idea of purification. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. The price is paid. This is enough, Isaiah. It's okay. And see, worship is surrender to the true story that, that, that God is present, that his glory and his holiness fills the world. When we realize that, we confess because we realize we don't measure up. But God doesn't leave us there. His heart is to restore us. And after he's restored, after he's forgiven, what's the next exact thing that happens in verse 8? He's purified and something happens. Then I heard the voice of the Lord. Once the relationship is restored, there's an openness. And hearing or knowledge of what God is doing is relational. Once this relationship is reconnected, all of a sudden Isaiah can hear what God is saying to him. He hears the voice of the Lord immediately. The breach has been dealt with. When he sees God, all he can concentrate on is his sin. But when God restores him from his sin, all of a sudden he can hear that God is speaking. He can hear what God's saying. See, remembering that we are restored to God puts us in a place where we can actually listen to who he is. And what we hear is the invitation to respond. What was God saying? He says, who are we going to send? Who will go for us? There's an invitation there. And what does Isaiah say? Quiz time. Here am I. Send me. I'll go. You see, this is a simple progression. You're saying, but Jeff, what does this have to do with worship? I want you to realize this is what is actually true. This is reality. All, all the time, this is the true story that we're called to live according to. God is present with us every single moment of every day. He is holy and His glory fills the world. And when we start to realize that, when we start to get a glimpse of that, we see our own need. And it would destroy us if God's heart was not to restore us. If he wasn't willing to forgive us, we would be toast. And that restored relationship puts us in a place where we can actually listen to what he's got to say, and he invites us to be a part of what he's doing. That is the story of reality. That should be what shapes our day-to-day lives. The challenge is that the world tells a counter story every single day. And the reason what we do here on a Sunday is so important is because it's reminding us of what the truth is. All week long, every single day, you hear a different story. And it's subtle, and you don't even realize it's being told to you. We don't. We, we just drift right into it. 
The forces that drive our world seek to undermine that truth and, and drive our thinking another way. You'll notice that the subpoints in this part of the outline don't have biblical references because these aren't the truth that the Bible tells. This is the truth the world tells you on a, ma- on a regular basis. And the first, the first part of the story is that you are the main character. You're the main character in the story. And you know what? It's not too hard to convince us of that because we're kind of prone to that anyway. When you look at a group photo that you are in, who is the first person you look at? <laughs> who is the main character in the photo, Right? How do you assess a given situation when something's happened? You assess it in light of what it means to you. Why did they do that to me? Why does he make me feel that way? Right? You think you're talking about him, but you're actually talking about you. The, the world will tell you that you are the central player in the story. You're the main character. And, and, and that is a frame through which we view the world. I love these sculptures. There's a video Rob's going to show. Starts as a man, Right? But when you take a different angle on the sculpture, it's the double helix of a DNA. This one starts as a buck, a deer, right? As you go around, it becomes two, maybe flamingos, two big birds, I'm guessing. <laughs> I'm not a botanist. Lobster, right? Something, some kind of crab, whatever it's going to be. Comes around, different perspective. Oh, it's a man. How about that? Oh, these two giraffes, like they're chewing on each other's tail. And it comes around, what do you see from the different angle? You see, you see it? It's an elephant. See, the perspective that you look at these sculptures by determines what you see. And the world says you have to look at everything looking through your perspective because you're the main character. But when we come to worship, we say that's not true. God is the main character. He's the central actor. He's the one present at the center of everything that happens. So to counteract the world story, every Sunday we come together and the first thing we do is we sing a song or we say something, we confess something, we read a passage that reminds us that the center of the universe is not me, it's God. That God's always present. Today we said, all creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing. Sun, moon, and stars rejoice on high praise to the Lord of light divine. Do you see what we're doing? We're refocusing from the world story that says you're the most important thing. You're the main character to say, no, I'm not. Let's, let's put our attention toward God. Come now is the time to worship sometimes. we sing Whatever we sing at the beginning is doing this very thing of realizing the world has lied to you. You are not the main character in the story. It's God. You're telling yourself the truth. What we do in worship is remind ourselves of the actual truth and surrender to it. The world continues their story, though, and they say, you must hide your liabilities. You must hide your weaknesses. You must present your best side. Don't let people see your failures or your weaknesses. Those of you that got Facebook, how many of you have an ugly picture of you as a profile picture? If you do have an ugly one, it's so you can say, I'm so cool that it doesn't matter if I have an ugly picture, right? You're still trying to put something about yourself forward. And we've heard forever about people that when you come to church, you put on a mask, right? I used to laugh. My pastor, when I was a kid, would talk about driving to church, and his kids would be yelling, and he'd be yelling back at them, and they walk in the church, and the minute they walk in the room, they'd be like, good morning. <laughs> right? Because the world says, hide your weaknesses. 
Hide your liabilities. You've got to look successful. You've got to look like you've got it all together. But when we worship and we remember God is the central character, we're confronted to be honest with our brokenness and with our need. Just like Isaiah was pushed to say, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. In worship, when we see God, we also see ourselves. And so we, we try to do something in our worship service that helps us actually express that. Because that's the truth. If you really see God for who he is, you're going to see who you are. And rather than hide that, we want to be honest about that. Sometimes we'll use a prayer of confession, one that we read. There's one that I love, most merciful God. We confess that we've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we've left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your way to the glory of your name. Amen. We don't often read a prayer, but when we do, the reason is we want to... That's the truth. We see God. We see ourselves. We need to be honest about the truth. The whole earth is full of its glory, and when we see that, we're forced to say the truth about ourselves, even though the world says, hide it. We say, no, 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 not here. This is where we speak the truth. That's why today we sang, Lord, I come. I confess. Bowing here, I find my rest. Without you, I fall apart. You're the one that guides my heart. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. We're speaking the truth that counteracts the story we've heard all week long that says, hide the truth about yourself. Why does the world want us to hide it? Why is that part of the story? Why? Because the world will tell you that God is an angry parent. He's mad at you. The world would have you live in fear of God so that you hide your sin and your brokenness. And worship and surrendering to the true story remembers that God's heart is to restore you. Now you say, wait a second, Jeff. I heard the first line of that psalm that Christine read. And I, I, I see judgment all through the Bible, Jeff. There's harsh things in the Bible. Have you read the Old Testament? Yes, I have. So what, what are you saying? Why are you saying that, that God's heart is to restore. God also judges. But you know what? Let's, let's boil this down. If you had to say the one main story of the Bible, what would it be? God created a good world. You, I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you the answer. You can tell me if I'm right or wrong. Because I really don't want you to launch into that. I want, I want to tell you what the answer is. Um, God created this good, beautiful world, and we turned away from him and did our own thing. And it brought brokenness and pain and suffering but in Jesus, God came in the flesh to fix what was broken, to restore us. Would you say that's the main story of the Bible? That is what we need to remember. Yes, there are portions of the Bible where God is angry and, judge, and there's pain and suffering. But the heart of the whole text is that God's heart is to restore you. If he was, an angry, if he was only an angry parent, why would he have ever come in the flesh to die for you and me who done, did nothing to deserve it? See, the moment Isaiah confesses, you see the seraph taking the coal, purging him. Your guilt's taken away. Your sin is atoned for. See, that's what we need in worship. We need to see that God fills the world, that he's holy. And, and when we see that and we're overwhelmed by our own sin, anybody messed up this week? Anybody blown it? Anybody, been, anybody lived by the story of the world? We all have. And we confess that to God. And guess what we hear next? God is enough for you. His heart is to restore you. We're going to start 
if I can get my communion volunteers to buy into this, we're going to start doing communion on a more regular basis, and we're going to start putting it at this point in the service. Because this is a place that you need to hear. I've confessed, but Jesus is enough here. Take. His body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. God's heart is to restore. Today we did that, a new song. Just listen to these lyrics. I mean, you sang them today. How great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain I could not climb. In desperation I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night. Then through the darkness, your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished. The end is written. Jesus Christ, my living hope. See, that's not just a good song that you hear on the radio. That's, that's the truth that we want to confess out loud. God, I need you. Oh, I need you. And then we hear, we're not waiting for, to need him. He's come to us. Who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. The cross has spoken. I am forgiven. The King of kings calls me his own beautiful Savior. I'm yours forever. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Do you hear that different story? That's a different story than the world's going to tell you. That's the truth. And that's why it's important that we come together because six days a week you're hearing that other story from everything you hear. Every, every relationship you have is telling you God's angry at you. You've, you've, you've got to hide your liabilities. And you're the central character. And, and we come back together and we say, no, it's not true. That last verse of that song, then came the morning that sealed the promise. Your buried body began to breathe. Out of the silence, the roaring lion declared, the grave has no claim on me. Now, let me tell you, people, I, if that doesn't get your fire started, your wood is wet. After you've heard the world tell you all week long that God's mad at you, that there's no hope for you, that there's no nothing, and you come in here and you remember that the grave has no claim on you. Right? That's why it's important for us to come to worship because, you know, we'll forget that story. We'll forget it because we're being told it a hundred times a day in every interaction that we have. And every Sunday we come here to remember the true story, to surrender to it, to say, no, what they've told me all week is wrong. This is the truth. Communion becomes that ultimate reminder. It's a a way of us celebrating the fact that, that, that it's true, that we've been restored Today we sang, we will feast in the house of Zion as another way of saying that same thing. We're, we're, we're invited to the table. We will feast in the house of Zion. We also see a difference in the way the world knows things. Because the story of the world, since it's focused on you as the main character, says knowledge is an object. It's something that you gain. It's something that's about you. You possess it. The world makes your faith all about concepts and ideas. And there are concepts and ideas in our faith. We study things as objects, but in that text we see that knowledge comes to Isaiah relationally. He, he's, he, he gets to reconnect it in relationship to God and then he's able to hear and he's able to understand. And we, we sing, open up our ears to listen. Open up our eyes to see. Because we, 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 we realize we've been reconnected and now we want to hear what God has to say. And the world will tell you that even in church, when you leave here, it's the obligation to perform. Now you've heard it, you better go get it done or else because God's that angry parent. And yet what we see in Isaiah is this invitation. God says to himself, who, who will go for us? Who are we going to send? There's this invitation to respond, which is different than an obligation to perform. 
You see, I'm hoping you're getting a picture of why worshiping together actually matters. Why does it matter that we come together? Because we've got to remember this story. We've got to let that guide our lives and not the story you're told every day. We often fall into this trap and think coming here is something we do to earn points with God because he's the angry parent. We've got to keep him happy. We have an obligation to respond. And what I'm saying is, no, this is where we come to try to remember the truth. Because, you see, we all have liturgies. Liturgy is a church word. It's an old, from an old two Latin words that really mean the work of the people. It's the things that people do. The, the word in the Bible was used to, to talk about the service of the priests. It's the work that we do. We all have rituals that we go through outside of here. We all have habits and patterns, practices that support and reemphasize one of those two stories. We have habits in our life. And those liturgies, those habits shape us. Now, if you look at Romans 12, I know we normally read 1 and 2, but we're going to read Romans 12, 2, and then 12, 1. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know what he's saying there? Don't listen to the story. Let your practices, don't be conformed in your practices to that story, but, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then if you go back to verse 1, he says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Practice things that will reinforce the true story. Because you see, our liturgies, the habits we go through, shape our loves. The things we do over and over again shape what we love, for good or for bad. Those, they make those things that we're, that we're doing become a part of us. Our liturgies and our practices shape what we love. And the point is that our loves are being shaped by the habits that we go through on a daily basis, by the stories that we listen to, whether we realize it or not. You may not realize the story the world is telling you, but as you live in it every day, it shapes what you love. And what we want to do is not let our loves be shaped that way. If you live your life with yourself as a central character, you will learn to love certain things, even if they're bad for you. You'll learn to love them. If you live your life consistently hiding your faults and denying them, you will learn to love something about living that way. You know, Jesus says, he's talking in Matthew 6, don't store up treasures for yourselves, treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy it. But he goes on down. The reason he's saying all this, he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, the things that you value, the practices that you go through, the things you give your life to will take your heart there. You will love your liturgy. Your liturgy will shape your love. And that's vitally important because our loves drive our actions. Love is the strongest motivator of any actions, both positively and negatively. I think you've all seen how someone's love for another person can either destroy them or build them up. Love is a powerful, powerful motivator. Our love is shaped by our practices. Our practices are things that, we, 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 that flow out of the story that we believe. Remember that prayer in Philippians, I pray that your love would grow in knowledge and depth of insight. Not that your knowledge and depth of insight would grow in love, but that your love would grow in knowledge and depth of insight because it's love that actually motivates you. In Colossians, Paul says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. These are all things he wants you to do. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And then look what he says. And over all these virtues, 
put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. The thing that holds them all together is what you love. And our loves are shaped by our actions, and our actions flow out of our, litur- our liturgies, and our liturgies flow out of the story that we believe in. See, the, here's the kicker, and this is why worship is so important, and I, I really hope you grasp this. The kicker is only the truth will set us free. We know that, right? John eight thirty two. then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's why being here as a body, together. I know I'm not a legalist. I'm not going to be mad at you if you don't show up on Sunday. I, I have a life too. I just get paid to be here every Sunday, right? I know stuff comes up. But what I'm saying is, if coming here is an obligation, you've missed the point. Coming here is, is when I was a kid, we used to swim in the swimming pool and dive. I was not a great swimmer, but I could sink really, really well. And one thing I excelled at was we would, we would when we had the pool at the, early in the morning in the summer, the community pool, we would throw pennies in and dive down as deep as we could to, to get the pennies, right? That was the goal, see who could get the most pennies. Well, I can remember that feeling because I sank really well, and I'd be down there getting pennies. Other guys were fighting to get to the bottom. I was, man, I, I literally can lay on the bottom. And I was grabbing pennies, but then I remember that feeling that said, okay, you got to breathe now. <laughs> and I remember going, and it was hard work for me to get up. And I remember bursting through and going, <gasps> You know, just that hunger for air. Sometimes that's the way I feel about worship. The story's been told to me all week, all week. I've just been down here doing my stuff, and all of a sudden I realize, whoa, I need to breathe. I need the truth, and I'm fighting to get to the top, and Sunday morning it comes, and I hear the truth. God's here. You know what? You've messed up, and that's okay. Tell him. Be honest, because he is enough for you. Now, listen to what he has to say, and he's inviting you to respond. I need that every single week. It's, it's important, it's vital, this habit. And there's something powerful, I, I do that. For me, in my own private devotional life, that's kind of the flow I do. I read the text, I try to see God, I, I, but, but I want the same type of thing happening in my devotional life, but there's something powerful when we come and do it all together. When we let people that have gifts up here lead us in singing and, and we get to see other people and we do it, we hear voices around us. And there's something powerful in that because we realize it's not just the story I'm telling myself. It's a story that we believe. And that enables us to live in relationship where we can hear and respond to what God's inviting us to. See, this commitment to worship, the reason we think it's so important, it's, it's what we do here that, that is vital to help shape the way you live your life. That's what church as an organization offers you, this, this ability to live day by day in this world that tells you the story, but to come back every week and remember, no, What I've heard out there is not the truth. The truth is this. There's a story that runs counter to the whole structure of the world that is what I want to base my life on. And over time, this story, this liturgy that we do here will shape the things you love. It will shape the way you act, which is this process by which God changes you. Our worship leaders work really hard to help tell this story week after week after week. And I know they may sing songs you don't know or songs you don't like or too low or too high. These guys work really, really hard to put, to tell you the story that is true. We had a, a meeting just to go over new songs the other night, and I, I just said, you know, guys, I appreciate what you do because I believe that as you do what you do and we come and participate with you, people's lives will actually change. It's not going to happen this week or next week, but you come back Sunday after Sunday 
Keep reminding yourself of that true story. Let that liturgy shape what you love. Because you know what? Once you taste that, I'm sinner and God forgive me. Once you get a taste of that, you start loving that. And then you start loving the God who's forgiven you. And then you start acting completely differently because of what he's done for you. See, Sunday morning is one way of helping you be shaped into the story that is actually true, the one that will set you free. Let's pray. God, what we do is not what Isaiah saw. But there are so many parallels. And we do want to hear you, God. We, we, we want to come and remember that you are the central actor in everything. You are the main character. That you are holy and that your glory already fills the earth. And as we're overcome by that, as we're overwhelmed by our own sin, in light of that, we thank you that your heart is to restore us, that you have made a way through the cross and the resurrection through the blood of Jesus for us to be forgiven and restored. And we just ask that you would open our ears to hear your call, to hear this story, to to make it a part of our lives. And that as you invite us into this true story, as you invite us to live out this for people around us, this message, this truth that is so powerful that sets us and others free, that we would respond. We ask you to give us the words and the heart to respond to you today in Jesus' name. Amen. That's a song of invitation, right? Take part in that. And you know, I use this example all the time, but when you're shopping for a car and you've never seen it before, but once you look for it and then on the drive home you see 50 of them, right? Because your brain's attuned to that. Now, what I'm, my hope for you this week is, I've talked about two stories. The true story that the scripture tells us, and the story the world's going to tell you every day. So my hope is that you this week, because you've heard about these, in, in the things you see on TV, and the things you hear on the news, and the interactions you see around your work, and even in your own thinking, that you'll be able to say, hey, that's the wrong story. I'm listening to the wrong story and come back here and I, I just hope it's, it's raised your awareness of what the world is telling you so that by next Sunday when you come back, you're like, I'm hungry for the truth. Tell me the truth. Let me speak the truth again because the truth will set you free. Amen.